One frigid September night, during the height of the Second World War, a young man walks alone down the railroad tracks into a small northern New Brunswick town called Bathurst. Cold and hungry, he knocks on a door. A kindly old grandmother answers it and invites him in to eat and warm up. For the next two weeks, the mysterious stranger stays in Bathurst, befriending many of the curious locals. Then, as abruptly as he appeared, he vanishes. Days later, the people of Bathurst learned that this quiet young man who'd come to their little town was actually a Nazi U-boat captain who had escaped from a prisoner of war camp and that he had been arrested by the Canadian Army trying to meet up with a U-boat by the Maisonette Lighthouse, not far from their quiet little town. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. This stranger, who had made such a positive impression on the people of Bathurst, was named Wolfgang Haida, and he'd been born in East Prussia, in what was then Germany, but is now part of Poland. As a child, Wolfgang had always wanted to be in the Navy, and he enlisted as soon as he turned 18. He got rejected. His marks on the entrance exam were not good enough to get into the Niobe, as Germany's floating Naval Academy ship school was called during the interwar Weimar Republic years, before the Nazis came to power. However, soon after Wolfgang would have started at the academy, disaster struck his would-be floating school when it ran aground and sunk, killing half of the people who would have been his classmates, if only he'd been accepted. In order to make up for the loss of so many of their would-be naval officers, additional recruits were allowed in. One of these new recruits to the German Navy was Wolfgang Haida. One year later, Hitler came to power. Many years later, after the Second World War began, Wolfgang spent the first six months of it at sea in a submarine as a U-boat understudy shadowing a captain. Soon after, shortly after he turned 28 years old, he was promoted to a captain and given command of his own brand new U-boat. His short-lived career as a U-boat captain was not a very successful one. You see, he didn't so much spot the first allied convoy he encountered, so much as that first allied convoy he encountered spotted him. And these British convoys of ships crossing the Atlantic going to and from Canada were guarded by destroyers. One destroyer, the HMS Blakeney, spotted Wolfgang's U-boat on the surface and went after it. Wolfgang tried to dive, but he was hit by underwater bombs, called depth charges, that the Blakeney dropped. His U-boat was all but destroyed. It barely managed to get to the surface. As he tried to surrender, the Blakeney rammed his already stricken U-boat, as if to add insult to injury. His U-boat sunk, but he and his 42 crew members boarded the Blakeney 
as prisoners of war. They were taken along with the convoy onwards to Canada, where they were imprisoned in a camp in Bowmanville, Ontario. As a prisoner of war in Camp Bowmanville, Wolfgang Haida found himself in the company of many other members of the German Navy, including four more distinguished U-boat commanders than himself, the most charismatic and successful of which was named Otto Kretschmer. Otto Kretschmer, though only one year older than Wolfgang, was a bona fide German war hero. He'd sunk 44 Allied ships during his time in the war, and he was a household name in both Germany and Britain. He'd basically single-handedly pioneered most of the tactics the U-boats used throughout the war to terrorize shipping in the Atlantic. He was so famous and so feared that when he was captured, the British marched him through the streets of London, and angry Londoners hurled objects and shouted insults at him. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill made a special announcement in Parliament that Otto Kretschmer had been captured. His capture made headlines around the world. But now, he was in the same Canadian prisoner of war camp that Wolfgang Haida had just arrived at. Things didn't go very well in the camp. Soon after Wolfgang arrived, far on the other side of the Atlantic, the Canadian Navy conducted an infamously bungled raid at a place called Dieppe in France. It was an absolute disaster, and it led to hundreds of Canadians being killed and thousands captured. Among the belongings of the dead, wounded, and captured Canadian soldiers, the Germans discovered, much to their horror, orders that Canadian prisoners of war that the Canadians captured were to be shackled, which means to be placed in chains. Because of this, the Germans decided to put their new Canadian prisoners in chains, since the Canadians would have put their own Germany prisoners in chains. The Canadians were mad at their soldiers being shackled, so they announced that now they were really going to start shackling their German prisoners back in Canada until the Germans stopped shackling their Canadian prisoners. And through all of this mess, the British were loudly encouraging the Canadians to shackle those Germans. The British, of course, were in the midst of being heavily bombed by Germans, and they were seeking revenge. The British had written up the orders to shackle the German prisoners which had been found on the Canadian soldiers. The Canadian government had actually been unaware of these orders which were found on their own troops who were captured at Dieppe. Meanwhile, back in Camp Bowmanville, when top U-boat commander and imprisoned German war hero Otto Kretschmer found out about all this shackling, he decided that nobody was going to be shackled on his watch, and he led a riot, which took over Camp Bowmanville. 400 prisoners of war, a hundred of which were actually already shackled in chains, ran amok, and they successfully took over the whole camp for two days. Eventually, Canadian commandos took back the camp, struggling with German captives, who were armed with bricks, tables, chairs, and baseball bats, and hockey sticks. In total, more than 80 Germans and 20 Canadians were wounded. News of the riot, which was called the Battle of Bowmanville, did not become publicly known at the time, but it really did rattle the top officials of the Canadian government who did know about it. Despite this British insistence on shackling the Germans, 
The top officials in the Canadian government harbored doubts and discomfort about this because they knew that their own citizens were being placed in chains as a direct result. Meanwhile, at Camp Bowmanville, though, the Germans suddenly went really quiet. They went too quiet. It was almost as if they were planning something. Back in Germany, the Germans wanted their hero, Otto Kretschmer, back. Somehow the Nazis got in contact with him. It was believed that they were sending cans of food with false bottoms in it, in which documents were hidden. And these contained an escape plan. Otto Kretschmer learned that there would be a U-boat coming to pick him up that autumn off the coast of New Brunswick at the Maisonette Lighthouse near the small Francophone village of Bathurst. Otto Kretschmer organized the German prisoners in Camp Bowmanville to set about building tunnels to escape. These tunnels were so complex that the German prisoners actually built a whole underground railway to move the soil. But here's the thing about building a whole underground railway. It's not that subtle. And while the Germans were working away at building tunnels, the Canadian guards were well aware of this, and they were just watching and listening to their digging. They were just waiting for them to make their big move. When the night of the big escape came, Otto Kretschmer emerged from his carefully dug escape tunnel right into the waiting arms of the Canadian army. The escape attempt was failing, and it quickly descended to a yet another riot in the camp. During the chaos, a distinctly less impressive U-boat commander than Otto Kretschmer, one who managed to somehow get captured on his very first ever mission without even so much as firing a single torpedo, let alone sinking an enemy ship, decided to make his escape. Wolfgang Haida swung a piece of wire over an electrical cable going into the camp, he grabbed one of the ends in each hand, and he swung down it like a zip line, making his way over two separate barbed wire fences this way. Despite there already being a massive manhunt undergoing for him, Wolfgang calmly walked into the Bowmanville train station, ordered a ticket, and boarded a train out of there. It's not actually entirely clear what Wolfgang did between escaping camp Bowmanville in Ontario and arriving in Bathurst. However, it didn't seem like he did anything that you would really expect an escaped Nazi to do, though. You see, Wolfgang was something of an Anglophile, which means he really, really loved England and all things English. When he was in the German Navy, he would frequently choose to spend all of his leaves, all of his vacations before the war in England, where he would just wander around and explore the countryside, talking to people, meeting people, learning about the history. He just really liked England. He traveled all over that country when he was younger, before the war, of course, and he actually spoke really excellent English himself. He was really obsessed with the British Empire, and he was very well acquainted with Canada, even though he'd never been there before. It's believed that he made up an identity, that he was a land surveyor from Toronto, traveling for work, and he seemed to have hitchhiked a good chunk of the distance and traveled by train for the rest. He would have gone some 1,400 miles through Ontario and Quebec before getting to New Brunswick. The ease at which he traveled was all the more startling because they didn't make a public announcement so as not to alarm the public. However, 
a lot of people were well aware of his escape. It wasn't just the Canadian government officials and police and army that were all looking for him, but also the Americans had helped in launching a massive manhunt for Wolfgang Haida. However, he made it to Bathurst without incident. He actually showed up really early. He had two weeks to kill before the U-boat was supposed to arrive and collect him. He didn't exactly hide. He just wandered around the town and he met people. After his rejection from the Naval Academy, he'd taken up a job as a sign painter. In order to thank the kindly little old lady who took him in, he painted her a new sign for her little shop. One of the surprising things about Wolfgang's acceptance in Bathurst is that such a reception was extremely out of character for that particular town. Bathurst actually had two separate incidents by that point in the war where they'd incorrectly accused people of being spies. The first happened a year before the war, as tensions were rising. A man with a German accent rolling a barrel appeared in Bathurst. His name was Bernest Hurd. He was from Vancouver, and he was calling himself, he had a giant sign saying this, the world's greatest lover. He had rolled that barrel all the way across Canada, and he was on a quest to find a wife. He planned to find his wife, and he was going to carry her all the way back to Vancouver. People at Bathurst accused him of being a German spy, and he was arrested. The police decided that he was no spy, and he was merely a curious eccentric. A year later in New York City, he caused a minor media sensation. Even in that city that's famously filled with eccentrics, they thought he was a pretty unusual story. He appeared at the World's Fair, still rolling that barrel, and at that point he'd still not found a wife. Just as a side note though, he actually did find a wife in Ontario. So um, all of you single and lonely backyard history listeners, take note. That's one option. <laughs> the second time that the people of Bathurst thought a German spy had come to town was when a tall, mysterious man in a slick leather jacket, tweed hat, and black gloves, fully looking the part of a spy, appeared in the Kent's department store. They called the police on him and he was arrested. Turns out that he was just a highly valued member of the New Brunswick Power Commission, which was the precursor to NB Power, and he was there to work on their electricity network. But no one can say that the people of Bathurst were not vigilant about German spies. But yet, when an actual German agent came to town, he managed to charm and ingratiate them for two whole weeks. It doesn't appear that he even remotely laid low. He seems to have wandered around Bathurst extensively. He met lots of people. He spent a fair amount of time out on the wharf playing with a transistor radio, which you'd think might raise some red flags. But then one day, as mysteriously as he appeared, Wolfgang was gone. Nothing remained of him except for that transistor radio, which he left on the wharf. The Canadian army, however, had secretly broken German codes, which they were using to hide their messages a while before all of this. And so the Canadians were well aware of the upcoming rendezvous with the U-boat. While Wolfgang Haider was spending two weeks just hanging out in Bathurst, the army had quietly taken over the Maisonette Lighthouse. And there were three Canadian destroyers hidden off the coast, lying in wait for the German U-boat. The cold night of the rendezvous 
As the appointed hour drew near, a Canadian army patrol near the Maisonette Lighthouse caught a man. The man at first claimed to be a tourist, looking for rare birds. Being as this was late September, and after dark, the Canadian soldiers thought that that story was not particularly believable. Wolfgang Haida gave up, and he told them the whole story. He told them how he was going to meet up with a U-boat that was on its way. While the Canadians knew that much, Wolfgang revealed to them how he was going to signal the submarine and what the signals were. At the appointed hour, Canadians went out and they gave the signal in the night. Meanwhile, on the Northumberland Strait, the U-boat glided in, but it hesitated before surfacing. Its commander was suspicious. The U-boat started doing sonar scans of the area and it picked up one of the Canadian destroyers, which was parked nearby. A translator with the Canadian Army got in touch with the hesitating U-boat commander and gave him the codes that Wolfgang Haida had given them. However, the already suspicious U-boat commander was also from East Prussia and he noticed that Canadian's German was not right. The U-boat started its engine and began to turn around and make for safety. The Canadian destroyers heard the engine and they abruptly lit up the night with phosphorus shots, which were actually specially designed for this mission to try and find the U-boat. But the U-boat escaped. As the U-boat glided to safety in the night, Wolfgang was marched back to the prisoner of war camp. Perhaps it was just as well for Wolfgang that he didn't make it aboard the U-boat. As it made its way home, it encountered two Canadian destroyers near the Azores Islands and was sunk, killing 38 of the people on board. Wolfgang Haida was held in the prisoner of war camps until 1947 when he was released. However, he contracted polio and he died only three months after returning to Germany. He was only 33 years old. Otto Kretschmer, that most famous U-boat commander of all, on the other hand, had something of a late-life redemption arc to his post-war story. He spent the rest of the war in prison, and then he was released into a changed Germany, one which was now divided by the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. By that time, West Germany was not a foe, but it was a friend of the Allies, and now the idea of having a German who'd pioneered some extremely effective naval tactics sounded like not a bad thing to have on their side. So Otto Kretschmer re-entered the West German Navy, and he became an admiral. Otto Kretschmer died at sea, although his death at sea was much different from the deaths of the crews of those 44 Allied ships that he sent to the bottom of the Atlantic. To celebrate his 50th wedding anniversary, he rented a yacht, and at that party, at the ripe old age of 86, he fell down the stairs, hit his head, and died. As for the Canadians, though, with the risk of humiliation of a German prisoner escaping Canada now gone, as soon as Wolfgang was captured in New Brunswick, the Canadian government decided that it could no longer, in clear moral conscience, shackle German prisoners of war being held on Canadian land. Against the will of the British, and actually in the face of an angry and vitriolic British resistance, the Canadian government reached out to the Nazi government and asked to have a meeting 
in neutral Switzerland. When Canadian diplomats met their German counterparts there, they came up with a mutually agreed on standards for how they would treat their respective prisoners of war. Both countries agreed to ban the shackling of each other's prisoners. This is one of the first times in the country's history that Canada broke from the foreign policies of Britain to go in an independent direction. This action, and how Canada went about achieving it, set the tone for the more independent, multilateral, and humanitarian foreign policy Canada strove towards in the latter half of the 20th century. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.